Hello, this is Mark Lieberman, your host of The World According to Mark, brought to you through radio station WPVMLP, 103.7 on your dial and streaming globally on WPVMFM.org. Today, we're going to talk about the independent pharmacist. What is an independent pharmacist? What do he or she do in that business? And it just so happens that we have an independent pharmacist. I want to welcome Taylor Jones from Healthridge Pharmacy to the show today. Taylor, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. So those of you who are going to be able to see this on Facebook will see um, Mr. Jones's uh, grand office with all the mahogany paneling and a lot of books. <laughs> But I'm actually just kidding because there's some metal shelving in the background and a lot of boxes. And so <laughs> that means that Taylor has sequestered, sequestered himself in his office, which is modest. And so is Taylor. So Taylor, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so um... I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, originally, um, just kind of outside of town. Um, and, um, you know, uh, just got a chance to, to be in the mountains um, as part of my last year of, of pharmacy school, you know, training to be a pharmacist. Went to Chapel Hill. They sent me up here despite what I preferred uh and and i was all the blessed uh for it um um didn't realize what i'd be missing when i came to the mountains um and uh and so glad that i did because i never wanted to leave I met my wife up here uh john monroe and so um we you know had to move away for a little while you know as part of some of our first jobs but got to move back and uh, very uh, blessed to have this opportunity to uh, be um, the owners of Healthridge Pharmacy now and and uh, continue on uh, what the the founder of the pharmacy started back in 1997 um, and and just practice good pharmacy and try to be here for our community and our patients. So you and your wife, Jana, She's also a pharmacist, and you, as you say, you're the co-owners of Healthridge. Uh, so it was established before you and your wife got there, is what I'm understanding. Mm -hmm. And you're um, in sort of an outlying area. It's close to Black Mountain, which is not too far from Asheville, and um, and it's a it's a relatively modest but serviceable uh, facility, which I visited. And uh, so you, you got your start here and you've stayed here. And I guess I want to ask you, first of all, for those of our listeners or those folks who don't know what an independent pharmacy is, who maybe get their pr drugs prescription over the counter and otherwise at the so-called big box stores, which typically include CVS and Walgreens, and there are a smattering of other chain operations uh, for pharmacy. What does it mean to be an independent pharmacy 
and you as an independent pharmacist, how do you distinguish what you do and what your pharmacy does versus what they do? Well, um, you know, the, uh, we can really uh, offer basically everything and more that you might uh, expect from a regular pharmacy section of a big box store or a chain pharmacy. Um, we can fill all the same prescriptions as a regular, uh, you know, chain pharmacy. Uh, and we can uh, stock all of the same, you know, over-the-counter items and more. And so you're going to find our, uh, our service to you as a patient uh, from an independent pharmacy is going to be uh, a whole different level. So I would I would challenge anybody who's interested in, in getting a prescription filled, uh, you know, and, and going to a place that, that may truly care about that prescription, about you as an individual and about your health, you know, go, go check out an independent pharmacy. Um, you know, the, the reason the vast majority of pharmacists uh, go into an independent setting um, is because we, we care about actually uh, fulfilling our oath as a pharmacist. So when you graduate pharmacy school, you know, you got a white coat ceremony and you have an oath and it's to, um, to pardon the train out here. We're close to the railroad tracks. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the, the oath that we take is to really, um, to do what you think a pharmacist should do. And that's, uh, be there for you for um, questions about your medicine, you know, uh, counseling uh, and making sure all the medicines agree with one another, you know, what about interactions. So, um, and, and on top of that, an independent pharmacy is really just embedded in the community typically where we really get to know people. Uh, on average, an individual might see somewhere uh, between, uh, they might see their, their, their physician two or three times in a year, maybe, maybe, maybe a lot more if there's a lot going on, but they'll see their pharmacist potentially um, 10 times, 12 times or more in a year. Uh, and that's even if you're getting 90 day supplies. I mean, we, we see people a lot and uh, we really get to know you and we um, get to be here for you and, and be a part of your, your healthcare team. Um, a pharmacist didn't go to all this training and, and get a doctorate degree these days uh, to sit in a mail order pharmacy somewhere just scanning barcodes all day uh, and mailing stuff to you. Uh, they didn't go to pharmacy school just to be um, running around you know like a rabbit in a big box store and not having the time to to talk to anybody. Um, you know, I, I've worked at a big box store before um, as an intern pharmacist. So, um, and, and when I was there, I literally spoke to a patient uh, for about 30 seconds about the prescription they were picking up um, and counseling them about basic things that a, that a student pharmacist might be able to do. And and when I got done, you know, I thought like, well, you know, this person really needed that uh, counseling about their blood pressure medicine or something like, hey, when should I take it or what are the side effects? And um, when I got done, the, 
the manager told me, oh, you got to get, you can't talk to him that long. You got to get him out. You got to get him through the drive through. Um, we got to keep moving here. And that's what the big box stores have to do these days. Um, the pharmacists there just don't uh, have the staffing or the uh, ability to talk to you as, a, as an individual, as a patient. Um, and independent pharmacies, you know, I mean, there's always busy times for everybody, but if you go see an independent pharmacy, and, and I would um, encourage, you know, everybody listening to do that, you, you'll, you just get a whole nother experience. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit more in terms of, again, what your, how you distinguish what you do and what independent pharmacists generally do. Um, in today's world, uh, consumers, patients, whatever, have a lot of choices, and you've alluded to them. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I wasn't sure what you were indicating in terms of numbers, but I'm guessing that most pharmacists today are employed in the big box stores as opposed to being independent pharmacists like you are, because there's a ton of CVS's, Walgreens, and whatever, and similar ones across the country. Plus, I suspect you would agree, or maybe maybe you have a different slant on it, that the pharmacies that are located in grocery stores or in Walmart, are those are not truly in, independent. They're part of another corporate parent, essentially. So, uh, people make choices. You made a choice. You had an experience at a big box. How many years ago was that? It would have been 2012. Okay. So 2012 and 2022, it's not that long ago, but it seems as if there's been an acceleration of movement of the prescription business, the retail to those stores. A lot of um, other uh, pharmacies uh, that were not independent were bought out. So there's more consolidation. Um, so things have changed even more since you worked there. So, well, let me ask another question as you were, you mentioned a doctorate. So what is the training that a pharmacist has to undergo in order to be a pharmacist? You're a, a PharmD, I think, uh, which is just your, the, the, the nature of your degree or explain that a bit. Yeah. So, um, Maybe um, about, you know, 20 years ago, um, it became uh, the requirement to, um, to have a doctor of pharmacy degree in order to become a new licensed pharmacist. You have, you have boards, you have a law exam, you get licensed by a state. Um, and that, that happened about 20 years ago. And so the training is now four years after you, you know, most programs are four years after you get into pharmacy school. Um, and is that after and, you've gotten your a bachelor's degree, bachelor's of science or a bachelor's of arts? So yeah, it, most, uh, most people in pharmacy school have a bachelor's or higher. It's still possible certainly to matriculate uh, without a uh, prior degree. Um, it's becoming less, common so you know at, at least at UNC you know it's, it's still probably 80 to 90 percent of the students have a four-year degree or higher prior to entering pharmacy school and then you got four years of really uh, rigorous um, 
clinical training. And so the vast majority of those four years are going to be spent uh, learning drugs, learning um, what they do in the body. Uh, and, and it's all about um, the clinical uh, side of pharmacy. You don't learn a whole lot. You could probably take an elective uh, in, in some of the schools on you know, independent pharmacy or like what is community pharmacy, which is really what people think of first whenever you, who's, you know, what's a pharmacist? So it's the person standing behind the counter at the drugstore. Um, but, you know, there's also the whole hospital side, a lot of uh, need there uh, across the country for, for pharmacists, lots of pharmacists employed it through health systems and hospitals. Um, and so a pharmacy school has to balance all of these different settings. A lot of pharmacists are now entering um, the ambulatory care setting or clinical setting where we'll, we'll sit down with patients just like a, a, a provider would, like a primary care provider or a, or a mid-level practitioner might uh, at a doctor's office. And, and so we've got training to really manage medications. Um, we got four years of pharmacotherapy and a lot of, um, you know, the, the, other medical uh, providers or specialists only get about six months of pharmacotherapy training. And so we really know about the drugs. We don't have any physical exam training hardly, but um, you know, we, we, we learn a lot about medicines and not so much about, you know, insurance and billing and, you know, drug supply chain and all that. That's not really trained in pharmacy school so much. On the job training. All right. So let me follow up on that. But first, uh, those who are just tuning in, we're talking with Taylor Jones, who uh, with his wife, Jonna Monroe, own and operate Healthridge Pharmacy uh, in and around Black Mountain, North Carolina. And we're talking about just what is an independent pharmacy and pharmacist? What do you do that's different um, from other pharmacists that operate in different settings. And you just explained again, you've got the big box as we call them, CVS, Walgreens. You've got a pharmacist that work in hospitals that are there not to dispense drugs to the general public, but to hospital patients. Um, a lot of other places in which pharmacists are, are practicing and your training is extensive. Your, your potential, you know, if you're, competitive with most other pharmacists, as you said, Taylor, you're, you're looking at approximately eight years of formal academic training, and that doesn't include the internship, and you were in an internship pr program. So I want to get back, however, to what you were talking about in terms of visibility and how you operate differently, you personally, but um, independent pharmacists. These days, and again, this is my observation just over the last several years, when a person goes to a pharmacy with a prescription that their physician has ordered, and it's only physicians and physician assistants and probably a couple others that can actually prescribe the drug based upon the diagnosis and treatment protocol, you go to... And let me apologize for a second and get my phone off. Um, you, you, they go to a, a, a pharmacy and, and I've gone to a pharmacy, everybody's gone to a pharmacy and you, you don't even see the pharmacist. 
I mean, the pharmacist is, is back there somewhere. I presume the pharmacist has to be there in order for, um, you know, just to observe state licensing requirements. But you see a clerk of, who may have some training of some sort, but basically after the, the prescription is dispensed, usually the first question um, besides what, where's your credit card or do you have insurance? It's probably the last question is, do you have a question for the pharmacist? Um, and I'm guessing that, you know, okay, do you have a question? Well, yeah, I have a lot of questions for the pharmacist. <laughs> but the way things have been scaled, the larger chain stores are not, they're not prepared to have a visible pharmacist who interacts directly with the patient because they're just trying to move it in and move it out. And we've seen that in other segments of healthcare, not just pharmacy. And is, mm -hmm. that, a, is that a true statement? Have I accurately Definitely. depicted? Okay. Yeah. And, and the question is, is, is that okay? I mean, if, if lots of people are going to the pharmacy with a prescription and they hand it over or the doctor calls it in, they get their drugs, they reach into their pockets and pull out, you know, a credit card if their insurance isn't uh, covering it. Why is that not, why is that not good ultimately? Or why is that not preferable for many folks that are on prescription medications? I mean, they can't, they, they could, they can talk to their doctor who just, just the doctor says you should take, you know, 50 milligrams of such and such drugs twice a day. And, um, and I think that will cure whatever condition. Why is that not sort of sufficient in terms of the patient's care of him or herself and their understanding of what they need to do? It, it certainly could be sufficient. It depends on the, the situation. Um, but a lot of times, um, as you alluded to, uh, this, um, this trend of, of corporate medicine uh, where, you know, your, your doctor is now part of, you know, uh, there, there's less primary care practices or hospitals for that matter that are also independently owned. A lot of times they're part of some other large organization, happened to mission hospital here, you know, um, bought by a, a for-profit publicly traded entity, if, if I understand right. Some people yeah. refer to it as a hedge fund, but that's a whole different story, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, so uh, it, the business side is really looking at uh, profits and, and moving um, patients through uh, and making more money for stakeholders, shareholders, hedge fund managers, I guess you're saying, you know more about that than I do, but um, so, so there's a big need for being listened to uh, and being counseled as a patient. Um, you know, doctors are having to see more patients than ever in their regular doctor's office settings. Um, and, and so that's no secret where, um, you know, patients realize like I've got five minutes with a doctor if I'm lucky and, you know, I've got like 10 questions. I mean, you, if you're lucky, you get done with one maybe or two and and the whole thing's over and and so they're kind of well i see i see patients that you know really um could use additional counseling on the medicines um 
there may be, of course, drug interaction situations where there may be multiple uh, doctors that a patient sees their specialist. Drug therapies have only become way, way more complex over the years, and uh, the number of of caveats on uh, what is the you know the standard practice or or best drug regimens you know it's just getting more and more complex and and so while sometimes if it's a very straightforward situation a patient may have um, hopefully gotten everything they need uh, at their uh, appointment where the prescription was originated you know written for. Um, we still see it all the time where uh, there's going to be additional questions, uh, and that's what we're there for um, as, as pharmacists. Um, and also, I mean, another, another segment of your, your question may be um, the, the trust factor. Like, um, you know, physicians typically are trusted, I, I certainly hope. Uh, it, you know, if you have one, you trust them. But when you look at um, surveys amongst the general public, um, nursing's often the number one most trusted profession in the country, and pharmacists have been number two for some time. Um, and, and, and the percentages of, you know, do you trust your nurse or tr do you trust your pharmacist, they're, they're much higher than uh, many other professions, uh, including um, the, the, often the providers. Um, and while I don't know if that should be the case, um, we still are viewed by the public uh, as, um, as trustworthy and kind of a, a second opinion. And as, a, as an advocate, like, you know, if somebody's wondering, like, was this drug really gonna do to me? Um, you know, what is this COVID shot really going to do to me? I'm like, you know, I've, I've dispensed this a hundred thousand times by now. So I've talked to a lot of people about it um, or I've given this shot 5,000 times and, and here's what's probably going to happen. Um, you know, I, I, I think um, most medical providers are trustworthy, but again, for some reason, the pharmacists are, are viewed even more so that way. Well, I'm going to, um, posit the possibility that one of the reasons behind that is the amount of time, as you were talking earlier, that, uh, you know, not just time, but actually staring into the eyes of the customer patient and giving them your sense of things and your wisdom. And I'm, again, I'm talking about independent pharmacists in general. If you're, if you have that kind of ability to have that kind of interaction which feels personal you're probably going to come away with a better sense that you've been heard and that your questions have been understood than if you're again in a physician's office and all physicians are different but a physician's office where you have a short amount of time you, they, more time is spent typically taking your history and your weight and what you're allergic to and signing HIPAA requests and going through all that administrative paperwork and only a small amount of time is spent where the doctor can interact with you. I'm guessing it's that personal feature you're talking about, which leads people to have a higher perception of the care they get from a pharmacist. And as you said, nurses who are directly interacting with the patients. So um, again, I wanna introduce Taylor Jones, uh, pharmacy owner, 
with uh, his wife, Jonna of Healthridge Pharmacy. We're talking about the business of being an independent pharmacist. I wanna just mention before we get on to, I think the, a key issue we wanna discuss, which is the whole money trail here. But besides offering essentially the same kinds of medications that other pharmacists, including the big box ones, you also do something which is not typically done in a big box uh, pharmacy, which is called compounding, which, and when I hear that word compounding, I think of a drugstore that uh, I used to patronize when I was much younger, uh, whose logo was a mortar and pestle. And I don't know if everybody listening to this knows what a mortar and pestle is, but it's a, it's a bowl with a heavy object that you use to grind up meds. Is that what compounding is? And is that something that's really important in terms of what you do and other independent pharmacists? Yeah, so compounding um, is, is a component of our pharmacy. And, and a lot of independent pharmacies do compounding, but not all. Uh, we may be more willing to do them overall. You know, even maybe it's a easy, easy to do compound like a magic mouthwash where um, you may or may not even need the mortar and pestle. Sometimes you still do. Uh, we do use those mortar and pestles on a regular basis in our compounding lab, though. Uh, and, and, and they are used on a, on a daily basis across the country. Um, compounding is the, the um, you know, the, the uh, very old school, like uh, uh, making it from scratch from uh, either powders or pulverizing tablets and making things, mixing them together, um, you know, going by formulas and, and science still. Uh, there's a whole metal, like a, a scholarly journal dedicated just to pharmacy compounding and best practices. And there's, um, there's been a, a big push, uh, rightfully so, for the past um, many years to uh, make things, uh, as far as compounding goes, um, better and a, a little bit more standardized across the country. But the, the cool part about compounding is it's totally customizable for you. Your prescription could be the you know, one of a kind, literally, and your doctor could write for something that is not commercially manufactured in some you know, manufacturing plant in another country that's like shipped to us. We might be making something right here in our lab um, using our, our you know, either our old school equipment, mortar and pestle, or, or some, some high-end, uh, very high-end equipment, and it's going to have your name on it, and it was literally made for you with care, and, um, and, and it's just a different, different thing. It's very, very uh, fun doing compounding. So what kind of drugs, not to spend too much time on, but what kind of drugs would be the sort of thing that you, that a patient might get or that you might prepare um, in the compounding method as opposed to all the drugs which are already, you know, in a tablet, um, in a gel, gelatin pill or some other form that, as you say, is, is bought through a wholesaler who buys it through a pharmaceutical company. And you've got tons of drugs now that are being manufactured in China. And frequently you hear that some of the compound, some of the drugs coming from overseas are tainted with potential carcinogens and so on and so forth. But if for, for the typical drug 
blood pressure medication or statins or um, you know th uh, thyroid um, substitutes or whatever are those are any or all of those potential uh, drugs that could be compounded and would where the patient would benefit from a unique formulation for him or her versus the drugs I just rattled off and others that we could name? So um, compounding is going to be uh, very individualized and, you know, most of the, most people aren't necessarily going to need a compound on a regular basis. Um, you know, their blood pressure medicine might be sufficiently met via a, a commercial medicine, but on the other hand, what if there is only two strengths of one particular drug that's manufactured? In essence, think about it like shoe sizes, okay? There's only two or three or four strengths of this drug uh, on the commercial market that's FDA approved uh, and standardized. But um, if, that, if there's only you know, two to four shoe sizes, we'd have a lot of people hurting all the time walking around. Um, and so some people are going to be perfectly well-suited to have a um, commercially manufactured FDA-approved regular old tablet or capsule, um, but somebody might need a special strength that's not manufactured. Um, and a lot of drugs are only just a couple of strengths. And so that's one case. Maybe somebody needs something in a liquid form. I had... Um, you know, there's, there's lots of patients that are unable to swallow a regular tablet or, or capsule. Um, what if somebody's got an esophageal situation or, you know, something going on where, where um, they need it as a liquid it's not, and it's not manufactured that way. And it's not going to be manufactured that way typically because it wasn't found or deemed profitable enough by a big company to operate a giant FDA manufacturing plant and have that um, that type of, um, you know, you're going to have to have enough, uh, sales, you know, looking at it on that, on kind of, again, the corporate level, if there's not enough sales of it, then they're not going to bother dealing with it. Even if there's many people or, or a handful of individuals that do need it in a liquid form or yeah. flavored a certain way. So there's a lot of liquids, a lot of special, uh, strengths and, and, you know, there's, there's, um, the, uh, bioidentical hormones are usually a big component of compounding. Um, there's, so, there's so let me just let me just uh, sort of capsulize this, not to use mm -hmm. the pun. Um, as an independent pharmacist who does compounding, you offer um, greater personal contact with the patient that can where you can explain what does this drug do? What are other possibilities? What are the possible side effects? And customization can occur with compounding and other things. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about where, again, rubber seems to be meeting the road in terms of the cost and payment for drugs. So let me ask you straight up before we get into it is when a person comes to you needing a drug, um, and they're covered by a commercial insurance company, or they have a government-sponsored program through Medicare or Medicaid, can that person get you to accept those insurance programs to defray some portion of the cost of the drugs? 
Uh, if, if your question is, do we accept like Medicare yes. plans and all that? Absolutely. Uh, we are in network with the vast majority of, of uh, prescription insurance plans, especially those, those government and state plans, Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, the state, state health employees, stuff like that, for sure. The commercial plans, we also, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield, North Carolina, like the marketplace plans, um, the vast majority of independent pharmacies are gonna be uh, contracted and, and in network with those insurance plans. Okay, so then let's just move ahead again. My, my guest is uh, Taylor Jones, an independent pharmacist in North Carolina. And we're talking about what um, independent pharmacies do, but now we're going to talk about some of the challenges associated with the cost, the challenges to the consumer, the challenges to uh, independent pharmacists, the challenges to you. Um, you're uh, a member of an association called the National Community Pharmacist Association, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. that association is a trade association, I guess is the correct name, of only independent pharmacists. There are other trade associations for non-independent pharmacists, I'm guessing, and there's associations for the PBM, the pharmacy benefit managers. Now, there's a point in which there seems to be a collision of interest and um, and I'd like you to articulate that again from the standpoint that you're not a lawyer, you're not a lobbyist, you're not, you know, in the bureaucracy of all that, but you you have an understanding and you face the challenges of the way reimbursement, pricing, costs, and all the rest of that happens. So can you talk just generally about what are the challenges that you and, and other independent pharmacists are facing because of the way drugs are paid for in this country? Uh, yes, so, um, uh, you know, while, while we're in, you know, an independent pharmacy can join a prescription insurance <clears throat> network, a lot of times those uh, contracts or networks that the insurance companies allows you to be in are, perhaps, um, of course, in the best interest of the insurance company, which may own their own mail order pharmacy or may be affiliated with a specific chain or flat out owned by and have the same exact vested interests of a chain pharmacy. And so there's a lot of anti-competitive practices that go on. Um, and there's a lot of you know, smoke and mirrors that, that ultimately hurts patients and ultimately you know, from, from my uh, chair or my counter, I'm usually standing all day. <laughs> um, from where I stand, um, you know, the, the, there's, there can be tons of reasons why drugs might cost so much in this country, but the, you know, the insurance uh, companies, the PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, are probably chiefed amongst the reasons why we pay five times more money, you know, compared to another developed country for the same exact drug. Um, and so that really hurts patients uh, and literally causes people to go without their, their prescriptions um, and maybe 
you wind up in the hospital and, and end up having a really expensive hospital bill or, or cost because they've, they've not been able to afford their medicine. Okay, so uh, when we first talked about having on the show, I said we were not going to, you know, sort of get into the, the weeds, but we have to get into the weeds a little bit. I'm looking at the National Community Pharmacists Association's website and their discussion about um, drug prices, reimbursement, and focusing, frankly, uh, on the PBMs. They say PBMs are classic middlemen who oversee the administration of drug programs for commercial employer and governmental health plans. They work for Medicare and Medicaid and the big private insurance companies. They don't provide health care. They're not doctors. They're not pharmacists. They don't invent life-saving drugs. Okay, so what do they do? According to this association, um, they decide what drugs can be covered. Um, in order to be covered, they have to be in the plan. The drug makers, meaning the pharmaceutical companies, can provide, can and do provide rebates to the insurance companies, and the PBM takes its cut and then passes the rest on to the insurance company. None of that goes back to the consumer. And they go further in this article and say PBMs decide what pharmacies you can use. If your pharmacist wants to be in your plan, they must pay huge rebates down the line. PBMs decide whether you should use a mail or whether you must use a mail order pharmacy and um, they decide how much to pay the pharmacist. Okay, those are some pretty bold proclamations and I'm suspecting that you probably understand it that way at your level as the guy behind the counter that's interacting with the patients, but ultimately you've got to make a living. So you got to figure out how to get reimbursed or paid for what you do. But how do you see those, those um, statements essentially as uh, from, from your point of view, again, as the independent pharmacist? Um, yeah, so the, I mean, would it, would it be shocking to, to hear like, you know, that the middleman, you know, would make money on a prescription, make more money on the sale of a prescription than the provider of the the prescription, you know, the independent pharmacy or whatever pharmacy. Um, a lot of times we're dispensing medicines on just razor, razor thin margins or, or negative margins. We're literally dispensing a drug um, and the patient's paying a lot of money for it too. You know, they're paying 40 bucks, $400 maybe. And that money goes into a pharmacy's cash register. Uh, but after all the things that the pharmacy has to pay for, uh, and then these fees that the PBMs assess, uh, we literally lose money on that transaction. So it's like if you go to the Ford dealership and they really do sell you a car under their cost, or you know they let you drive off with it and give you a hundred bucks or something with it, and it's like, um, you know, it, it, maybe that happens somewhere, but it, it, you know, in terms of car dealerships, but. Uh, it, I, I can tell you it happens every day uh, at a pharmacy. Um, I'm talking about um, PBMs pay less than the cost of the drug in the bottle, not even counting the bottle, the label, the overhead, the labor, the pharmacist 
counseling you, um, uh, they're they're paying less than the cost of the drugs in the bottle. And and the goal there's there's a there's an industry percentage of um, you know the if I remember it off the top of my head right uh, the goal percentage of number of prescriptions sold under cost is about ten percent so maybe about every one out of every ten prescriptions I'm paying more for that drug than the insurance company is paying me back for. And on top of that, there's going to be hidden fees. There's going to be retroactive fees uh, that the, the PBMs assess later arbitrarily, and they're, they're, it's at their sole discretion to do that. And they might be, you know, maybe, my, maybe, maybe I was going to make $5 off of this $500 brand name drug. That might have been my net profit. But then this fee comes in, that's $50. Uh, and so the insurance company saying, I'll take that um, back and it can be well after the fact. So it's, it makes it a really challenging, <laughs> it makes it a very challenging um, business environment. And um, that's, that's, you know, kind of why the, there's organizations trying to shed light on some of these things. So let me just back you up again, because I think this is really important. Um, let's just take an example. Um, first of all, let's say we were talking about uh, oranges, like a, or eggs, a dozen eggs. Okay, if you were if you were selling eggs, you would go and buy the eggs from a farmer or from a co-op or whatever, and you'd know how much they cost. Let's so it's two bucks, and you know what you feel like you can sell it for. Let's say it's four bucks. So somebody comes in, they want to buy a dozen eggs. You charge them $4 and you know, and your bookkeeper knows that you've just made $2 on that sale. Now you're not adding in all of your administrative costs or keeping the lights on or your other employees, but you've decided that that's what you need to sell the eggs force so you can have enough profit to pay all these other marginal expenses and then leave some for yourself um, to live on. Now, what you're saying here with drugs is it's much different now. Somebody comes in and they have a drug that needs to be dispensed. Their doctor has ordered it. Let's say they have insurance and under the insurance plan, and I guess you have your computers, you know what the plan you know, what, the, how they handle it. They say, okay, um, the patient has to pay $200 for a 90 day supply of drug X. Okay. So you collect from the patient $200 and you may know that your cost of that drug was maybe 250. <laughs> so in your head, you say, I just made $50 off that drug. It's not a lot, but I can, I can do business doing that all day long because I'm making $50 every time I dispense that drug and I can use that 50 to pay all the other expenses. But the, the, there's interesting challenges you're saying, but in reality, you may have not even made $50 on that because somewhere after the patient has left the pharmacy happily or not happily taking the drugs, if that transaction is completed, you might get a notice 
or a dunning request or a charge back to you for that particular transaction, which might completely eradicate the so-called profit for the sale of that drug so that instead of making $50, you might be making, you might be losing $50. Is that what you're saying? Is that how it actually works on a day-to-day basis? That happens multiple times every day in every pharmacy. And a lot of times you may not really know, you have to estimate, you have to guess at what some of those chargebacks and fees are. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's amazing that any independent pharmacy is still in business when you look at the way that the 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 money flows from insurance companies uh, to pharmacies. Yeah, and and so just carrying on from this, Taylor, is it's not like you can say in your head, um, the insurance company has told you that you have to pay what I think would be regarded as a co-payment of. $250. Um, it's not like you can say, I know I'm going to get done. So I'm really going to charge the patient $300. You can't do that because no, no. that's the, the arrangement that the patient has with the insurance company is that's the maximum amount or that is the actual amount. So you can't charge more or less. Yeah. Can't charge more or less. So you're playing a guessing game. And the more times you guess wrong, the less money you make. And at some point that could all catch up with you. And, and, and that, but that's what you're facing, right? That's, that's when a lot of independent pharmacies close. Yeah. If, if there's been, or, or certainly there could be audits or something and just an insurance company can decide as the sole, you know, their sole discretion, the PBM may decide, okay, here's, here's an additional hundred thousand dollar fee. That's impossible to pay. Um, and so that, yeah, I mean, a lot of times that's when uh, a, a community may lose their independent pharmacy. Now, to be clear, I'm guessing, but you explain it if you know, that the CVS or the Walgreens or whatever, again, branded uh, commercial pharmacy does, I, I guess they're subject to the same thing. If, if you have to, sure. if, if you get charged by, is it the insurance company, the PBM, or are they both? one and the same because one owns the other, but I guess they're, they're getting, and I'll I'll let you respond to that, but I guess they're in the same boat, so to speak, at least as far as the actual costs that you have for dispensing that drug. Is that true? Um, So that, that may or may not be true. I mean, that, that that could be some economics there. Um, but it is why you see there's some PBMs that have been purchased by big box stores or they're partnered with big box ones. And so there may be some mutualism going on with some of the plans. And then they may flat out exclude uh, the big box stores may be more likely to just not be in network with one of their competing competing plans, maybe. But an independent pharmacy, we're, we're more likely to just get the worst contract uh, out, out of all of them, or maybe some, you know, it's just a standard contract out of all of them. So, so what you're saying, uh, Taylor, is that you obviously don't know what the contract is of any particular pharmacy with a PBM or insurance company. It could be similar to yours or it could be different, but you're also saying that 
they, a big box place might have the uh, discretion because they're corporately owned and so on and so forth to say, I don't want to do business with this particular outfit, PBM, insurance company, whatever, because I know I'm going to get charged back for cost of drugs and I, and I can do just as well by excluding them. But that, of course, has a negative impact on patients who may have that insurance program and they can't get the drug there. But, you, but what you're saying is, again, they have, they have to play to some extent by the rules that say, um, you know, you, you've got to, you, you have to be subject, you're subject to those pharmacies, your pharmacy, to these clawbacks of money, I'm gonna call it for, for want of a better word. But again, this is something we talked about earlier off air is a big box pharmacy sells a bunch of other things. They actually sell eggs. They actually sell, you know, uh, uh, liquor. They sell all kinds of other things that people might buy when they come to the pharmacy. So if the big box store loses money on particular drugs or only breaks even, another way they can survive, compete, still generate profits is by upcharging other items in the store that people might get just because they're, they have the convenience that they're in the store. Why not get the milk? Maybe it costs more than it does at the grocery store, but they're already there. Is that your sense of the economics of how that might work, if you know? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure about all the, you know, the big box economics. It's, it's just, it's going to be a different animal. I, I, I do know that for an independent pharmacy to survive, yeah, we, we also have to um, have uh, over-the-counter sales. You know, that's, that's kind of one of the terms that we use is if something's sold without a prescription in a pharmacy, it can be over-the-counter. Um, that's something that is a, a more fair and more transparent um, sale. Uh, there's no third party or insurance company that is manipulating things behind the scenes or, or um, that has to be, you know, that, that's telling you what the price is. And so a lot of times it, uh, our, our over-the-counter items that we do sell, yeah, we don't sell milk, um, but we do, we do have some chickens at home. So we, we, uh, we, we, we bring our eggs to, to work. Sometimes. They're not for sale. Um, but uh, if there's, if there's a bumper crop of eggs, we might. Um, so, uh, but we do uh, sell and, and compete with all of the traditional over-the-counter items, whether it's Tylenol or, you know, generic ibuprofen or whatever it is. And, you know, I think, I think, our prices are, are more competitive than some of the big box stores, unless, unless you happen to catch their item on the buy to get 47 for free or like who needs that much. It's probably short dated. Um, so, uh, you know, as far as, um, again, the, a fair price and good service, I think, you know, an independent pharmacy, you can get all the traditional items at a real, you know, when you think of, uh, vitamins, supplements, and, you know, and, and, and um, you know, toothpaste or whatever. And on top of that, you're gonna be able to actually ask us, ask a pharmacist about, can I take ibuprofen with the other prescriptions that I get? You're gonna have a harder time um, finding someone to, to answer that in a very professional manner 
when you go to a big box store and forget about it if you're a mail order. I mean, I, I don't even know what you'd do. You'd, you'd have to you'd have to ask your doctor, which is great uh, if you're at a mail order pharmacy. But and we all know doctors are are very busy doing very important things and seeing a hundred patients a day too. So I want to um, ask you another question, which I think would be on people's minds that are going to pharmacies, making decisions about you know which what pharmacy to use, and you've mentioned mail order now a couple of times. Um, before we talk specifically about mail orders, there are a number of companies that advertise that you should use their coupon or use their card as a way of reducing the customer's cost of a prescription, presumably instead of um, insurance. And one of the more popular ones, uh, there's d dozens of them, and I don't mean to necessarily single this one out, is GoodRx, and there's another one called Single Care or something along those lines, heavily advertised. And um, what happens when a, a person comes to you to get a drug and they have insurance and you tell them that under their plan, they're responsible for a lot of money, um, do you, ask them or do they i'm sure you have people that say well i, I have this good rx card or this other car, abc card what do you do as an independent pharmacist with that information or that option uh so again this is where um hopefully being an independent pharmacist we can we can deliver on that trust and transparency. It, it actually used to be up until a few years ago, it used to be illegal for, for me to tell you what your insurance is paying or what, you know, what it would be out of pocket or something otherwise off of your insurance. There were gag clauses in these contracts. So maybe it wasn't technically illegal, but there were gag clauses in these insurance PBM contracts prohibiting that. Thankfully, that was um, uh, taken care of where we, uh, by, by lawmakers and, and regulatory agencies or whatever, where we can actually say, all right, you know, your, your insurance is literally paying $0 and they're making your copay really high. Um, and, and, oh, by the way, of course, they're gonna be assessing me a giant fee later. Uh, and, and all the while they're actually paying nothing. Um, and so, yeah, of course we could, uh, use our, um, our, you know, let's say we've, we've got an in-house discount program that we use, uh, that is going to give you a really competitive out-of-pocket price that may be way less than your insurance. Now, um, you know, when you, when you want to look at like a, another, um, you know, discount card that gets mailed to you in the mail uh, and you didn't even ask for it, it's unsolicited. Whenever you see these other discount cards uh, advertised on the Super Bowl, uh, paying unknown millions of dollars on advertisements, uh, you got to wonder, well, what the heck's going on? And um, how are they able to do this? Like, how am I going to get my drugs cheaper than my insurance that I'm actually paying a premium for? And, um, and so, uh, you know, there, we, we're not going to be a part of, of those discount card games. Um, if you get something in the mail, 
uh, unsolicited or if you download an app or go to a website and you get a free coupon uh, that says, all right, you're going to save 90% on your drug costs and all you have to do is download this and bring it to your pharmacy. Well, your pharmacy is going to, uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's a big box store that actually accepts that or may encourage it even, um, they're going to get your name, your date of birth, your phone number, your address, medicine, and they're going to use that. We're losing you a little bit. Maybe you can get a little closer. Go yeah. Ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So if you take the, uh, that, that free coupon you got online or on your app that you downloaded or, or the, the card you got mailed unsolicitedly, those have processing numbers on there. You might see them. And so the pharmacy is going to input that into the computer system, transmit your name, date of birth, phone number, address, the medicine that it is that you're prescribed. It's going to transmit that to uh, the discount card program. And uh, what do you think they're going to do with that? Um, do you think that's how they might make their business? Uh, maybe via tracking data? Uh, there's a Consumer Reports article on that that I mentioned uh, previously uh, with a conversation with you, Mark. But, um, you know, there's there's um, if you're getting a, a something for free on the Internet or in the mail and it and it is kind of like a, a trying to get you to use it and give you a value, then um, there's a catch to it. that's being sold. You're, right. you're the product as the patient. And so I'm uh, you're skeptical. Pharmacy. Yeah. Uh, we, we've just in the last 45 seconds we got you're skeptical of it and i, hear, I understand what you're yeah. saying essentially is you have a discount approach to it if a patient needs help paying you're not you're not a big promoter or participant or anything in all these good rx's or internet stuff so yeah. most independent pharmacies won't take it the good rx is actually going to charge a fee just like the pbm they're okay. really not um going to solve or they provide something to people and maybe they've done something good if you are dealing with big box stores but again if you come to an independent pharmacy you don't have to play those games okay um just today i this is a real life example i had a prescription that um the insurance was uh the copay on their insurance was 168 dollars and 69 cents i've got it right here and um, we were able to um, not do that and bring it down to $28. Okay. And that, would, that happened today. We do that on a regular basis if we see somebody that's kind of getting taken advantage of. Um, and, okay. And, yeah. Well, let's just do this. I'd like to have you back on the show. We have a lot we didn't cover. I didn't ask you a lot of legislative legal questions, but uh, I want to again thank uh, Taylor uh, for being on the show today. Uh, Taylor and his wife operate Healthridge Pharmacy. You've given us a perspective of things from the standpoint of the independent pharmacist. Great information. And um, I hope people uh, will get some valuable insight on this. Thanks, Taylor, for being on the show. Thank you.